The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. This is Carol Bossert. I'm so glad you've joined us. Here it's, uh, well... Uh, it is the end of the summer, but uh, not the end of some of the exciting things that I have to share with you, including uh, getting uh, having on a number of guests in the next few weeks that reflect uh, some of the books that I read this summer. And so my guest today, Tiffany Jenkins, is one such author. Uh, Tiffany, in addition to being an author, is also uh, describes herself as an academic, a broadcaster, and columnist. Uh, she has uh, written a weekly column on social and cultural issues in The Scotsman. Uh, she has been involved in writing for the BBC and uh, arts newspaper, as well as The Guardian and The Spectator. As you can tell from her credentials, she is from the United Kingdom, and she has written a fabulous book called Keeping Their Marbles. And as uh, the uh, as we further our discussion today, I'm sure you will understand uh, the inspiration for that title. Uh, it is a book that uh, talks about both the history of museums and, and their collections, as well as the issues that are facing them today. And I'll just say at the beginning, we're only going to reach one segment of the discussions that Tiffany shares in her book, uh, and so I hope that this discussion inspires you to get the book yourself and uh, read very thoughtful and some controversial, but more importantly, thought-provoking discussions about uh, museums from someone that I know also loves them as much as we all do who uh, listen to this show. So, uh, Tiffany, that was a long introduction, but welcome to the show today. Thank you, and it's a, it's a nice introduction, so I'm very happy with it. Tiffany, uh, would you, I've shared only the briefest part of uh, some of your credentials and your career, but if you would just briefly share with us in your own words how you see your career path, how it's unfolded, and particularly those things that have really shaped your thinking about museums. 
Well, I've always moved between academia, uh, my PhD was in sociology, and trying to engage with my research with, war- with a broader and wider public, so journalism and ideas festivals. And I kind of move between those three. I find it puts me under pressure to account for, for my research if I, if I take it out um, and speak to people who have no idea what I'm going on about. But really my um, inspiration for um, being fascinated by museums comes from my early childhood. I grew up in Oxford and there were three amazing museums there. The first public museum in the UK and one of the oldest in the world, the Ashmolean, was um, founded in 1683 is in Oxford, a fantastic collection of art, uh, artifacts from all over the world. Pitt Rivers, um, a Victorian ethnographic collection with amazing shrunken heads and all sorts of strange artifacts. That is also in Oxford, as is the Natural History Museum, which held in the 1860s one of the most important debates about evolution. So that was on my doorstep, and I was one of those slightly uh, solitary children. And I spent much of my time in museums, which inspired in me a love of learning, but also of other worlds, very much, thankfully for me at the time, unlike my own. It was a bit like time travel. It helped me escape, and that meant that I have always loved and been very fond of museums. That's a great story. Thank you so much. And I just underscores a theme that... uh, resound so much and and we need to remember that people who love museums today were children who were introduced to museums and and had those magical experiences. I I had them uh, myself and I I do think that that's something that we can't forget uh, as we introduce new new children throughout the world to the, the wonders of museums. So then um, you have this academic background, you have a love of museums, so perhaps this next question is a bit obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is how did you come to write the book? Well, this um, I, I was working at a sort of think tank, um, and I cared about museums, and what I found was that they were becoming the focus of really heated and intense debates debates that all sorts of people were getting involved in who usually weren't. So politicians in particular. Um, this is sort of in 2000 when we had a new Labour government and they, they argued that museums were centres of social inclusion. And then we had a massive debate within the museum world in Britain over human remains. Who owns them and should they be returned to America or should they be returned to Australia? And you even got in, in the UK a pagan group arguing that they should have all the all the British human remains in, in museum collections. And I was fascinated about why something that many people I used to know would call fusty and dusty old museums had become kind of this electric and you know, very, very heated centre for contestation. So I wanted to try and unpick that. I did a PhD on it, and then I wanted this book, the Keeping the Marbles book, to be for a broader audience not academics just, even though it's a, an academic publisher who's published it, um, and to try and take a step back and say, why have um, these arguments become so so heated, um, so vicious at times, and what is going on with museums that they are suddenly like a lightning rod for all sorts of issues that are going on in broader society? And I don't, also didn't want to sit on the fence. <laughs> you said in my... You said in the introduction that some of the ideas are controversial. I wanted to say what I thought, but also 
explain why I thought what I thought and in that respect take some of the heat out because this debate over repatriation is sometimes um, so black and white in the way it's presented. You have one side against the other side and they're not always listening to each other and I wanted to try and go into the more complicated and difficult questions that are sometimes lost in that, in that kind of ferocity of debate. I, yes, I understand it exactly uh, what you're saying. We we all tend to uh, <laughs> any more uh, polarize uh, the discussions that things need to be either or instead of yes and. Uh, and that was one of the, the reasons uh, that I was drawn to your book. I was drawn to your book initially, I must say, by a review uh, that, uh, that I ran across this summer. And I, too, am very interested in the history of our collections uh, because I think that they do really, they how objects have come into museums, how different eras have thought about uh, collecting things and putting them on display, really uh, become windows into yeah. our cultural and ethical uh, beliefs and our, our beliefs in our relationships to others, other people, other nations, uh, uh, other ethnic groups, and, and of course the issue of power. Uh, mm, and mm. Uh, comes into play, but I, I don't want to get a, ahead of ourselves, uh, ahead of myself too much. Um, but I would, uh, as I said, that's that's the stories of the past are what drew me to the book. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you go on from that. But but uh, the first part of the book does tell the story of certain internationally recognized artifacts that have come become part of the the collections, and 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 this really does lay a ground work for your arguments about museums today and and uh, there were wonderful wonderful stories some of them I knew some of them I I, I honestly didn't know so uh, but given the name of your book and uh, that it is such a, a wonderful story I was hoping you could just sort of uh, frame our discussion today by telling the story behind the uh, Elgin marbles oh yes well, um, we need to go back to 1789, uh, actually 1798 to be precise, when Thomas Bruce, um, the seventh Earl of Elgin, was British ambassador to the Ottoman government. And this was part of the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled that area in, in Athens for around uh, 350 years or so. And what you had at that time was a burgeoning interest in ancient Greece, but it was, it was very, very embryonic. Um, Collectors in Britain and Europe were really enthralled to Rome at that period and these sort of polished and complete sculptures. Um, and they didn't really have much of the real stuff, the ancient Greek stuff. So Elgin's architect in Scotland went to um, make a suggestion that the casts from Athenian monuments in general might contribute to the knowledge of ancient Greece. Um, and then you kind of get this rolling, <laughs> expansionary project. Um, at the time, the, the Acropolis was being used by the Ottomans as a garrison, which is amazing to think about now. So the Parthenon was crumbling, was being treated as a quarry. The Ottomans are using it uh, to store weapons. People in and around the area were taking bits of the Parthenon that were on the floor to use for their homes. It wasn't the monument we, we know it now. Elgin's 
agents, because he didn't obviously do the work himself, uh, they gained a thurman, which is, an, which is a kind of the authority to do these things, to draw. A few years later, they, they got a second thurman to conduct excavations and to take things away from the Acropolis. They did take 200 tons worth, which is quite a lot. <laughs> and so in that respect, they probably exceeded the terms of the Thurman. But these, those were the days when detailed and lengthy contracts were unknown. Um, they also did beat some of them off the, off the building. So they were, they were a bit ruthless. I think one of the agents describes to Algon that they were a bit ruthless when they were taking down some of these sculptures. And they shipped they shipped them to Britain. Originally, they were going to be for Algam. Um, by, by that stage, a number of things had happened. Uh, I think ancient Greece had become a really bigger idea in um, both, well, in a number of people in Europe. It had it become part of a project to bring the golden age of ancient Greece to England to inspire arts and democracy. So it had kind of its meaning had become what we now know it to be more today. And Elgin was really poor. He had paid for this all himself. He was also suffering from syphilis. He'd <laughs> lost his nose to that, slightly unfortunately. His wife had left him for her lover, and so he really wanted to sell them, which he then did. Um, but it did take quite, it did quite, take quite some time. Um, when they first arrived, these sculptures in Britain, uh, quite a few people thought they were important artists, um, thought that they were a mass of old ruins. They were just broken and bruised. Um, but that was the main debate. It was less over acquisition, although that was subject to question. Um, it was more over their aesthetic value. And that was when it went to uh, the parliamentary committee, a select committee, and then parliament voted on whether they should be acquired for the nation. Um, all the evidence taken, well, a great deal of the evidence taken was whether they were any good or not. And you had various artists coming up saying they were the finest thing and couldn't put a value on it. They weren't as good, perhaps, or they were equivalent to the Apollo, the Belvedere, the, the Roman piece. And so they were more interested in, in aesthetics than, than how they were taken. Um, finally, uh, they were purchased for the nation, £35,000, uh, was paid to Elgin. He had actually wanted about seventy thousand, so he didn't do he didn't do too well out of it. And then they were uh, they went on display in the British Museum, where initially there was a hope that they would uh, inspire artists to achieve the same height that the ancient Greeks did. But I'm afraid British artists never did. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a good place to stop for a moment. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will. Uh, talk a little bit more about the Elgin marbles, but we're going to use that also as a jumping off point to talk about some of the issues now that are, are facing museums today. So please stay tuned. I know you're going to enjoy this uh, conversation further. Uh, we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. 
Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you so much for continuing to listen in. Today I'm talking with Tiffany Jenkins, author of Keeping Their Marbles. And uh, right before we went to break, Tiffany gave us only the briefest but great highlights of the story behind how the Elgin Marbles came uh, uh, from Greece and landed in the British Museum. And later in the program, we will talk a little bit more about now what is happening to them today. Uh, But before we do, uh, I want to shift gears just a little bit and uh, talk a little bit more about the second part of your book, which is... uh, I, you're really concerned about the state of museums, and I guess in my characterization, you really think museums are sort of suffering an identity crisis. Uh, why, what's, why do you think that? Yeah, I mean, that is what I think. I think one, one thing about the repatriation issue, so who owns culture, should uh, artifacts like the Elgin Marbles or the Benin Bronzes or human remains go back to the source communities? I think one of the reasons why that's become such a big issue in the last 20 to 30 years is because of the way in which we value and understand the purpose of museums. And I think two things have happened that have burdened them. One is that, I suppose I could describe it really as a a broader crisis in enlightenment thinking. You can see this in universities and generally the way in which the idea of the pursuit of knowledge the foundational purpose of museums is a pursuit of knowledge, but the way that is sort of seen in contemporary society. Um, I think you've had a number of theories, post-colonial theory, post-modernism, and just a general uncertainty about whether truth is a possibility and whether the search for truth is um, not only impossible but destructive. 
And so in that respect, that kind of idea of what a museum was for when it was founded, say, with the British Museum in 1753 at the height of Enlightenment thinking, has been very much subject to critical scrutiny. So it's it's no longer um, comfortable, it's no longer stable, and it's been subject to a lot of a lot of questioning. And at the same time, I think you've seen, again, in broader society, but impacting profoundly on museums, a shift in political and social culture where I think very much with the, with the end of the Soviet Union, with the shifts in the left, away from trying to change society uh, because it was deemed impossible or too dangerous, um, here we had in, in, in Britain, we had a, a prime minister called, you'll know, called Margaret Thatcher. And you know, her mantra was, there is no alternative to the present system. This is it. Um, stop thinking big. Stop thinking you can change society. We just have to tinker with the status quo. And you've had the kind of centrist politics that both America and Britain have seen for some time. And I think in that context, once politics is no longer about changing society, culture, whether it's how we dress or what we say or how we represent people, was very much the focus for left-wing movements as a place where you could achieve change. We can get people to talk differently and describe people differently. And I think museums were one of many kind of cultural expressions that have subsequently been targeted by activists as a way of achieving change that they were unable to achieve in broader society. I think you can see that particularly with museums like the Native American in Washington, but also here in in Britain. They were deemed to be centres of social inclusion. A Labour Party government wanted them to raise self-esteem, create community do all the sorts of things that they were unable or felt unable to do. And I think repatriation kind of really fits into that context really well. So museums are no longer a place to research these objects because they don't really know what they're talking about. They'll probably get it wrong. And the objects, if the museum could send them back, might really make a positive impact upon such communities. And that's, I think, that's how that kind of identity crisis, that crisis, has fed into the repatriation issue. That's very that's very interesting, and I and I can see uh, I can see the logic in uh, your your train of thought. Uh, mm-hmm. It I too have have often believed that museums up until recently, particularly the you know the national and the encyclopedic museums, have been more. Uh, reflective of society mm-hmm. than um, agents of change, and I, I find myself wondering as to their lim- you know, are they because of of how they were founded uh, to preserve? I I think that word preserve is is uh, can be troubling. Uh, to me, uh, because not only are we preserving the objects, but sometimes we're preserving a narrative that uh, was colonial in nature, uh, mm-hmm. certainly if we look at the National Museums of India, uh, or perhaps it was, uh, it's a narrative that is of the privileged that is mm-hmm. uh, that is often preventing us from seeing a a broader 
picture. Uh, and so I, I, I really... No, I, I, I know exactly um, where you're coming from, but it's become very blunt. Um, and I think there are a couple of examples maybe that I can draw on to, to show how those exhibitions may not always be the ones that you have problems with, may not always be wrong. Sometimes, obviously, they have to move with the times, but I'm thinking of something like the Museum in Brussels, which is an African museum, and it was basically founded on the blood of millions of Africans of people. Uh, um, and this is an amazing collection that's very much and has been imprisoned in, in the 19th century. Um, actually, the Pitt Rivers has some similarities in that it's very much the display is still as it was in the Victorian period. Um, but you go into the museum in Brussels, and on the outside is white men with African boys at their knees. These are sculptures. It's really shocking because it is a display of how people saw African people then. You go into the museum of um, you go into that museum, and there's a hall of remembrance, and you assume that it's to the African people who were killed by Leopold. And it's not. There's about 11 white generals painted on the walls. Um, 11. I mean, nothing. And it's so shocking that in a way, what that museum achieves is an understanding of that mindset. So it's not necessarily reproducing it. It's displaying it in a way that's really informative. And on your, your point about sort of reproducing privilege... I mean, the other thing about history of museums as well is that it is a little bit more complicated than that. So if you look at the Louvre, that was founded in 1793, and it was taken, (laughs) it was the artwork of uh, the religious and the king that that was taken. And many many of these pieces were burned by the revolutionaries. And then they thought, well, actually, no, this isn't just about privilege, although it was, and it's not just about God either, even though many of these paintings were for the privileged and glorified God. We want them too. And they set it up to be a museum of the people's art. And they, they thought, yes, these, these institutions or these, these artworks have been for the privileged, but they are for us now. And I think there's something, sometimes when museums try to be less for the privileged, they end up, in a way, condescending the people because they think what we need to do is show them their culture, not our culture, not the great refined things, but more ordinary. And I think museums should be for everybody. That is... That's a very interesting observation, and I and I would agree that many museums find themselves in a position of being in communities. You know, whether they define their community as a as a as a local geographic region or as you, the Louvre, uh, which the community is really the world, uh, and. Yeah. Feeling that there there is a, a need to create perhaps a broader narrative, a different narrative, uh, but they don't have the means to do that, uh, as, as you say, and, and, and they stumble. And I've had mm. many guests on this program, and 
uh, who have are providing uh, ways in which museums uh, can reach out to communities that don't look like them or perhaps don't mm-hmm. have uh, the the background that they do to create a much more an encyclopedic or well uh, a much broader look at uh, at at the world or or at the objects. I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you when I was reading your book, uh, you know, you talk about truth. Do you, you which, oh, that's, you know, (laughs) next to preservation, that's the next loaded term we're going to deal with. (laughs) Um, But so do you think that it is possible to display an object with a singular truth? A singular truth. I think there is such a thing as truth, but it is always provisional. Um, we never know enough about an object to say that that is the only story and the, 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 the quest has now ended. But I think the thing is about museums and the, what other things that they can do that other, you know, like your home can't or the, the original location doesn't... Um, achieve quite so much is that they put them in multiple truths and there there are a number of different stories you can tell about one object Um, if you take the Parthenon marbles for example, the Elgin marbles you have the story of ancient Greece and ancient Athens which actually the Acropolis Museum tells very well there's a collection of pre-classical sculpture that you pass through as you walk into the top galleries where the Parthenon marbles are. And it helps you understand the specificity of ancient Athens then. And it is close to the Acropolis. You can look out the window and see the Acropolis. And although it's very different to what it would have been two and a half thousand years ago, you know, it's not a busy, um, it's a tourist site now, but it's not a a city-state. It does convey the story of the Acropolis and what it meant in a powerful way. But in the British Museum, you see a, you see a complementary but slightly different story. So you see, you walk through uh, the Roman galleries or the Egyptian galleries or the Assyrian sculptures, and you see the impact those have had on the marbles and the marbles have had on them. So the Roman galleries, for example, you can see what the Romans are trying to get at um, and didn't quite achieve. And you can see it in the context of world cultures. You can also see the marbles in the British Museum in the context of 19th century Europe. The building would not look like it does now if the marbles hadn't arrived in London when they did. And so you can understand the impact of the marbles on Europe and actually the rest of the world because that's when you kind of had this this Greek fever take over. So there are multiple stories and museums can can help tell that. Um, I was reading about the National Museum of African American and the thousands of artifacts that they have been canvassing um, for that museum. I think they've got 37,000 or something. And one of them that just sprang out was the, the dress that Rosa Parks was making when she was arrested for refusing to give her seat up on the bus. Now, that dress, if it was in maybe a relative's house, would be meaningful to those people but in the museum I think it'll tell a a really profound story about an ordinary woman having an exceptional impact upon human beings lives and actually the nation of America 
And that's what the museum can do. It can kind of tell that story. Yes, that that's an interesting comparison. And I, I agree with, with you that when something is taken out of its context, its original context, whether it's, you know, Rosa Parks family's attic or uh, the Elgin marbles taken out, out of the Acropolis and put into a museum, no matter what objects we decide to put in the museum, we somehow give it that museum imprimatur, that museum lens. Yeah. We're, we are yeah. saying as, uh, as a society that at this point in time, our thinking is that this object is valuable for mm-hmm. uh, whatever reason, whether whether it's it's uh, a homespun dress or uh, you know a hat, anything that is human made. We are now saying this is more important than something else because we're not taking yeah. all the dresses, we're not taking all the sculptures, we're not taking every piece of artwork that everybody is making. We are making uh, decisions, and I guess the. The trick, it's not the trick, the challenge is that what we hold dear changes over time. Yes, it does. And what we may hold dear as individuals isn't what we think other people should hold dear. Um, So I have lots of nice things in my house, but nobody else is going to find them very interesting. But when we put them in a museum, we're making a judgment. And we're saying, you, who I don't know should find this important. And I think that's what, in the kind of non-judgmental age, um, where we kind of feel uncomfortable about making judgments and hierarchies and evaluating, you know, evaluating these things. I think that's why sometimes we feel a little bit cautious about this. But we're basically saying this is, this is important and you should take notice of it. Yes, and that gets us into concerns that because while we're trying not to make a judgment no matter what we do we're making a judgment because we have yes. made a decision over one or the other and while we want everyone to feel welcome in the building uh, people who perhaps are afraid that their judgment isn't the same as ours whoever we are and they are uh, may feel uncomfortable so I think we do we're in a real tension of wanting museums to be very open and egalitarian, but at the same time, the basis of their business is our business uh, is a little different. Uh, if we are looking at museums as solely of places of collecting, preserving, and displaying. Well, it is, it is tricky, but the opposite the other thing to do would be to be disingenuous and say we don't think anything's more important than anything else. And I think that kind of treats treats each other with indifference. Sometimes you can disagree and or you can urge somebody. I mean, we do it kind of in everyday life. You know, we hear a song that takes our breath away and we tell our friends, you must listen to this, you must. Sometimes they do and think we're crazy and sometimes... <laughs> They listen and they, they, they think this new person is, is incredible. And I think that's, that's a really positive thing to do. And it's also, it treats people with respect by not saying, I don't care what you think and we all think the same. By saying, this is what I love and I think you should do is a way of building, I suppose it's a way of building a common culture. And 
that can only be a real thing if, if um, disagreement is possible. Very well said. Very well said. And again, let us remember that it's not either or, it's yes and. Uh, Very much, yeah. So we're going to take our second break. And when we come back, uh, more with Tiffany Jenkins. And yes, we're going to get back to talking about the Elgin Marbles and (laughs) what's going on with them today. Uh, Again, I would recommend everyone. I know it's not your summer holiday anymore, but I know you have fall reading as well. Tiffany Jenkins keeping their marbles, uh, Oxford University Press. It's a fabulous read. Uh, We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. And as you know, we've been talking with, I've been talking with Tiffany Jenkins today, author of Keeping Their Marbles, uh, a reference to the Elgin Marbles. Uh, And right before we went to break, we were both uh, talking, struggling, discussing the challenges that are facing museums today as they wrestle with their place in society. Uh, they wrestle with their past uh, and think about um, what they, how they can best serve their communities now and in the future. And, and within that context, the issue of repatriation is uh, incredibly important and timely. And so, Tiffany, what's happening with the Elgin Marbles now? Well, they're still they're split between 
Bloomsbury in London um, at the British Museum and the Acropolis Museum in Greece, in Athens. And you have uh, arguments for the return that have been made for a very, very long time. Um, and the arguments for return change. So in many cases, uh, you, you will hear the, the idea that they are Greek and, and really no one else can relate to them like the Greeks, a kind of cultural essentialism. And more recently, you've heard the argument that um, they should be returned because of the way they were taken. Um, there's a kind of idea that you might be able to re rewrite or heal the past, which is quite popular um, at present. Um, but I don't think you can rewrite the past through present-day mores. And then you have a third argument, and that's the one that I'm more sympathetic towards, uh, but I still think they shouldn't be returned. Um, and that is that because if they were to go to the Acropolis Museum, uh, they would be placed next to other other parts of the Parthenon. And that there is something in that, because for me what's interesting about that is that the argument isn't what can the object do for you and me and communities. It's where is the object best understood? Where do we get the most out of, out of that object? Um, one of the interesting things about this debate, though, is that so just as you have arguments for repatriation, you have those for retention, some of them, some of them uh, that I sort of outline in, in my book and, and stand by. But there's um, a museum director who used to run the, the British Museum near McGregor and James Cuno, who's at the Getty, and they're both passionate and brilliant people who've done tremendous things for their museums. Uh, but both of them make a slightly political argument themselves. So just as some people say returning can heal the wrongs of the past, uh, there's an argument which Kino and McGregor advance, which is that retention in the, the museums they're, they're in at the moment can create a more tolerant world. Um, they can uh, kind of subvert nationalism. And Neil McGregor in December two years ago sent to Russia, one of the statues from the Elgin Marbles, a statue of Isseus, a Greek god. And within that uh, loan, which was <laughs> very mischievous on his, on his part, because obviously he wasn't going to lend them to the Greeks, sent it to, um, to Russia and said that the kind of language around it was that this is a, is a diplomatic act. It's one where uh, the Times newspaper, the newspaper of record here, said it was a message in Marvel about democracy. Um, and so it was a kind of political use for that, that artifact that I think was unfortunate. Um, and I think what, we would, what I would like to see is a kind of depoliticization of this issue and a discussion about where the object is best understood um, in terms of where benefits that object rather than you and me. You know, it, it, uh, in listening to you, it reminds me of one of the uh, most intriguing chapter titles in your book, and that is, Who Owns Culture? Yes. And uh, you quote uh, the former director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I don't have that quote in front of me, so I am going to... Uh, um, botch it, I'm afraid, but but essentially, <laughs> essentially saying that art uh, culture is everyone's, and uh, no matter where it resides, it is for uh, it is the the role of the museum is to preserve it for all of the world. Am I even close? 
I think that's exactly you know, about right. Very much so. And for future generations. So it's not just for, for the present. I mean, those marbles, they're two and a half thousand years old. And so we have a responsibility to those marbles and to the people who might see them in another two and a half thousand years old. And I think... I think one of the problems with the debate at the moment is that it's done through language that I find quite uncomfortable, actually. So it is mine because I am Greek. It is mine because I am from Nigeria. Um, you can't access this past or understand it. And it closes down what I think is... It closes down a kind of ideal and something that I think is true, which is that... No matter who we are and where we are from, we can look at an artifact and imagine maybe the person who made it and what kind of life they had. We can be transported. Um, so I'm white, I am female, relatively middle class, and I live in Scotland. But I can go to the British Museum or I can go to the Acropolis Museum and I can look at the marbles and I am taken to Athens or I'm taken to 19th century Europe. Now, it's probably very much to my imagination, so it's distorted. It's not, there's, you know, there's a provisionality to that truth that I'm seeing. But there is something universal about some of the greatest artifacts ever created or ones that tell a human story. And we don't have to be from that race or that, you know, we don't have to be from that time and place to get it. We can reach out of ourselves. And you make that point very well when you talk, uh, you interviewed uh, Lonnie Bunch, who is the executive director and CEO of the uh, African Museum of History and Culture, a, a part of the Smithsonian that is being built uh, as we speak and will open uh, September 24th. Uh, as someone who says that, yes, it is, uh, the, uh, it is a museum about... Uh, uh, Africans, African Americans, uh, the African diaspora, but it is a museum for everyone. Uh, it is a museum of American history, uh, and uh, and and so I think your point is is well taken that. Uh, the, the danger, perhaps, is not so much to have separate museums on separate parts of history as it is the philosophy that only people of a certain background or a certain understanding could enjoy or understand or even be welcome in that museum. Mm. Is that correct? That's, that's right. I mean, I think you've seen um, in recent times a kind of ghettoization um, approach to history and almost the creation of new hidden histories. So... I think the Native American Museum in, in Washington is, is something that Lonnie Bunch is responding to and trying to learn lessons from because you have there um, certain parts of the past are off access, are restricted if you're not of the right, if you don't have the right religious beliefs or ethnicity or even gender. And it's done in the name of affirming Native cultures and it's done in the name of all sorts of things you know, most people would approve of. But it has had the. It has actually, I think, racialized the museum, and it does mean it's not. It's not. It's a public museum, but the public can't go. Um, and it's kind of said that this is your culture and this is your history. Um, you're over there, and mm -hmm. 
it, it separates people. Um, and it does close down. It does close down understanding. I think uh, we'll we'll wait and see um, to the the twenty fourth of September to see what the Museum of African and American History and Culture is like. But it does sound like it is. It's not ghettoized. It's not just this is black, the black people. This is America, and you will understand America by coming to this museum. And I personally can't wait. Neither, neither can I. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be fabulous. Uh, we've got uh, just a, f- a few more minutes uh, on the show. I, I do think that it's important. Uh, we haven't touched on any of the other ways that art and uh, uh, history are being politicized. Uh, certainly, mm-hmm. in in Syria, in the Middle East, uh, in uh, horrible things that were happening. Uh, in Iraq and their National Museum. And certainly ICOM is trying to do a, a, a better job and a good job mm. in mm. making sure that uh, we're not trafficking. Museums are not unwittingly supporting uh, uh, looting mm. uh, that, is, that is, is going on. But here, I, I'm still struggling with... Um, you know, something that you've said in the book, you said that museums are shifting from temples of culture to forums for debate. And I personally think that that's a good idea. What's still concerning about that to you? Well, I think it sounds a good idea um, on paper, and we all look like, we all like a good discussion. And museums that sort of are about history and you want to argue about the meaning of that history but I think what's actually happened is that they've become a little bit uncomfortable with the object Um, and these are kind of sweeping generalizations but I think with this crisis of confidence that I I talked about earlier um, ambivalence about their kind of research role and whether the object is theirs or not maybe it shouldn't be in there maybe it was looted maybe it really belongs to the uh, Nigerian people, as in the case of the Ben and Bronzes. And so I think they're slightly defensive about the object and at the same time desperately trying to get people into the institution. Numbers are a way to kind of prove value when I think museums are, are um, unconfident about what their more general value might be. They can sort of say, well, look, millions of people come, you know, with British Museums, six million people come every year. So they're desperate to get people in. And I think they underestimate the intelligence of people, so they talk down to them. Mm-hmm. And it's presented almost as if um, debate is more important than objects. But if you don't have the object, then why are people coming? And what is there to, to argue about? And I think it's a defensive, a defensive move that, that suggests that they have forgotten that actually objects should be at the center of the collection. Thank you. Sometimes yes. I could kind of ramble yeah. on a little bit. No, 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 go ahead. <laughs> Sometimes I think that in trying to be relevant, um, they kind of chase the audience. They take, you know, they chase the children and they try and be like children. And uh, they try and be relevant and they forget that actually sometimes the past is relevant and sometimes even when it's not, it's nothing like our lives. You know, those Assyrian sculptures that ISIS is blowing up. There's nothing, you know, that from 800 BC, there, uh, I'm thinking of one 
sculpture in particular, which is kind of like a dragon lion with a human head. That's nothing like, it has no relevance to my life. And that is why it's also tremendously exciting. So let's not, let's not give up on, on old stuff and things that come from far away in, in the kind of desperate attempt to be relevant when I don't think museums need to be. They, they are about to pass, and that's interesting. I, I do very much agree with your sentiment that uh, too often uh, we have fallen into the trap of simplifying not because we want to provide access, but because deep down we don't think that anyone would really care any other way. And that is uh, truly a, uh, a, uh, a disservice uh, to our fellow citizens, our fellow humans, uh, because the culture is ours. I, too, would love to see that uh, Syrian sculpture and just wonder upon who made it and why and what their lives were like. And in mm. so doing, probably unlock a little, a little bit of a secret more about who I am and uh, yeah. who I am as a, as a human. Well, Tiffany, this has been a fabulous discussion. I wish we had had time to delve into uh, many of the other uh uh, topics that that you uh, you talk about in the the name of both repatriation as well as the the issues related to museums today and and how perhaps they've sort of lost their way but have an opportunity to uh, to regain their their core. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to write this book uh, and share it with all of us. I'm sure that uh, museum studies programs and museum colleagues will continue to uh, discuss and share their thoughts that uh, you have raised uh, in writing this, uh, this book. So thank you so very much for being on the show today. Thank you. It's a pleasure and privilege. And we will be back uh, next week with another uh, a guest who wrote a book that I read this summer, uh, a marvelous uh, 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 book uh, about... Um, uh, 1950s uh, presentation of African American artists in American museums. So please uh, mark your calendars, stay tuned. Remember, if you miss a show, you can always uh, download the podcast anytime. Uh, so we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.